lights. It's seven Friday night. Welcome to a very special bonus episode of the Seven Friday Night Podcast. I'm Sports Stars Magazine editor Chase Bryson, and I'm joined as usual by my co-host Ben Enos. Ben, say hello. Hola, amigos. First, we want to let everyone know that we already released our weekly episode on Tuesday. It features special guests Joe Davidson of the Sacramento Bee and Mark Tennis of Cal High Sports. Those fellows came on to help us break down this week's big game between De La Salle and Folsom, as well as a number of other NorCal football-related topics. Plus, Ben and I have our usual visit with Coach Edson and make a number of fun predictions on key games coming this week. Make sure to check it out if you haven't already. But now, let's get to the reason we're here. Today, Wednesday, October 6th, marks the 20th anniversary of what is arguably considered California's most significant high school football game of all time. And some have made a case it's the nation's most significant high school football game to date. The nation's. It was the first ever meeting between the nation's top two ranked teams I've seen it referred to as Prep Super Bowl One. It was a meeting at Veterans Memorial Stadium in Long Beach. The host Jackrabbits were ranked number one in the nation by USA Today, despite the fact that their opponent was entering with a national record winning streak of 116 games. That's right, the team that hadn't lost in more than a decade was ranked number two. Though we will stipulate that some polls, including Student Sports Magazine, had those teams flipped. The game reportedly sold 17,000 tickets, and issued 121 media credentials, which included such publications as Sports Illustrated and the New York Times. There was a combined nine future NFL players on the team's rosters. Regular listeners of this podcast are aware that longtime De La Salle assistant coach Terry Edson, number one in your hearts, and Michael Chiklis on your movie screen, is a weekly visitor to our show. And we couldn't let the anniversary of this game pass without seeing if he could round up some of his closest friends to chat about the monumental game. And he certainly came through. Ben, do us the honor of introducing today's awesome cast. Absolutely. We, uh, we want to welcome in and thank very much some special guests for this special episode. We will start with the third man in our three-man podcasting crew, uh, the former defensive coordinator, special teams coach, and pertinent to this episode, one-time athletic director of the De La Salle Spartans, Terry Edson. We're also joined by the legendary former head coach of the Spartans, Bob Latticer, as well as the quarterback of the 2001 Spartans, former NFL quarterback, Matt Gutierrez. And finally, we're also joined by former Contra Costa Times, De La Salle beat writer. I don't know if he's done anything since then, who covered the 2001 De La Salle poly game, our friend, Joe Stiglitz. Fellas, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Good to be here. Having us. Hey, Ben, you know how you become a legend like Bob Latticer? You get a quarterback like Matt Gutierrez. That's how you- <laughs> There it is. Smart. <laughs> Nobody ever accused you guys of not being smart. <laughs> I wouldn't argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> so we are going to get this thing rolling. And in doing my homework for today, uh, I came across what I-, I believe was an old student sports article at the time. It said that this game actually was not on the original schedule for De La Salle in 2001, and instead you were supposed to play Bishop Amat. Bishop Amat backed out of that game, and Pauly had an opening, but the sticking point, reportedly, was that they wanted you guys to come to Southern California. So let's start at the beginning. Terry, as the athletic director at the time, you get referenced in the article specifically as being the one who decided to play. So I'll give you the first question, and Lad, you could jump in too, since I'm well aware these decisions get made collectively. 
What convinced you guys that this was a trip worth taking? Well, I'll go with mine. I know when the idea became uh, a thing. Uh, it was when we were at uh, Mike Blaska's house after the, you know, uh, at the end of our season before we played Holly, and we were having like a, a party, like a post, you know, uh, end of the season party with the coaches. And we were just going to have fun, drink some beers and, you know, just chop it up about the last season and everything. And someone got the bright idea saying, hey, let's turn the poly game on because they were playing that night. We finished our season a week early and they were playing modern day. Right, Terry? Uh, probably. They always played each other. I'm yeah, sure. they always played each other. So we flipped the channel on. And did you, you already had the game set up at that time. Right. I was working on it. Yes. Okay. He was working on it. There we go. <laughs> so we turn the TV on and we start watching the game. And all of a sudden the party turned into a coaches meeting. <laughs> Cause we started planning right there. We watched them play and we were going, Holy mackerel. These dudes are talented. They're big. They got a lot of guys coming back, you know, and we we're going to play modern day and them back to back. And uh, we just thought, how are, how are we going to figure this out? So what we did is, I remember, Mike Blasquez was a big mover in this. He goes, well, we're going to work in the summertime. We used to work out three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. He says, we're going to work out four days a week. We'll go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, or Thursday, Friday. And, uh, you know, as coaches, we're kind of like, oh, another day out of our summer. But... We knew that's what we needed to do because we had to get our kids who were not matched up well size-wise with that team into the best possible shape we could get them in. And that me meant putting on some weight and mostly muscle weight and endurance because we had had a lot of guys going both ways too. So kind of ruined the party, but that was the beginning of our quest to go get after these guys. Terry, what do you remember about the game coming together as far as what Ben mentioned? Well, the first part of it was that um, we were going to play Bishop Amat. Bishop Amat at that time was coached by a former player of ours from the 80s, Mike DeFioria, offensive tackle, defensive lineman, went on to play at UC Davis. So we had played them Amat um, at our field. So we owed them a visit down there. So, you know, I wouldn't go as far as to saying that Mike backed out, but uh, being a member of our program and understanding the importance of the game, I asked him, I go, look it, I'm not trying to big time you at all or like that, but Long Beach Poly is asked to play us. And, um, you know, if you say, you know, we owe you the game and you have every right to say, you know, we're not going to be mad at you, but I'm not just going to call you and say, hey, we're backing out. I just wanted to know, you know, do you have any issues with us playing Long Beach Poly? And he was like, that's going to be a great game. I don't want to hold you back from that. So he said, absolutely. You guys can get out of the contract. No problem. So that was step one. Then in, in talking to Polly, you know, it was like, which uh, to be honest with you, uh, the way it was, it was when you're NorCal, and that's why I really kind of wanted to keep playing NorCal school. I mean, uh, Southern California schools. Because every time I called a Southern California school, it was always like, well, you got to come down here first. Like, you have to prove yourself to us. And I was like, you know, okay. 
you want to come down there? We'll come down there. And uh, that was part of the deal as long as the main thing was so I wasn't gonna let him get away with uh, the gate. So I said, we're splitting the gate. So I made sure that we at least got half the gate to go down there because I knew it was gonna be a huge game and they knew it as well. Um, so that, that was part of the negotiation. The other part of negotiations was convincing the coaching staff that this was a, a good move for Telesal to take on. Cause like Lad said, we already were taking on modern day uh, in the schedule. And, um, but I just felt that uh, it was a great challenge for our kids. You know, the, the rap on the program was always until we started playing modern day in 98 was, you know, Telesal never plays anybody. And that's why they have this winning streak. So uh, I knew how hard our kids worked and I knew the character of our kids and their resilience. And I just wanted to let kind of let the, the high school football world know about what our kids were about. So I took on all comers and um, I was proud to do that. And I, and, and I know the, the guys got super fired up when they heard they were going to be playing Pauly. And, it, you know, like you said, it became a huge game. It became a, a nationwide game, which, you know, I didn't know it was going to be that big of a deal, but it became that big of a deal. But the main thing was, you know, after modern day, then we beat Pauly in that game. It kind of cemented the legend of the Delisle football program. And I just felt our kids needed that, that kind of credit because I don't think anyone took them that seriously because they're that small school from Concord. But after that, after beating Modern Day three years in a row, then beating Pauly in that game, that was no longer the case anymore. Never heard that about our school since. Matt, I will bring you in uh, with the next next question. It's, it's the summer of, of 2001. And you now you found out that this game was actually going to happen. What, what was the reaction of you and your teammates? Uh, you guys knew what you had coming, and you knew who was on the team. And what were you guys thinking? Yeah, honestly, I was more <clears throat> excuse me, I was more nervous um, about the, the prospects of playing them. And I remember Coach Edson, I think it was in the summertime or the springtime, you know, late in the springtime, um, coming and asking the team or asking some of the guys if we wanted to play them. And we had guys at that time, and, um, you know, I'm sure this was the case throughout the years, that they were just so committed. Um, I think even thinking about it now, I, I really respect and almost admire the mentality that, um, that my teammates had where they just, you know, Coach Edson just said it, you know, take all comers. And I was thinking about it a little bit more rationally, like who have we lost, who do we have, who's unproven, um, and there was a lot of question marks on our on our roster, I think. And um, not not that guys weren't working hard or we didn't respect their talent, but maybe it, they just hadn't had an opportunity yet to show what they can do. And, you know, we were coming off some years, a great run with a lot of really talented guys. So, you know, I was more kind of getting down to business in my mind immediately thinking about how are we going to match up against these guys. Um, but in that, in that scenario, and I think when, you know, at that time when you're in the program, it was kind of like hopping on a roller coaster ride. You know, you, once you're in the car, you're going. So, um, and, you know, luckily we had the, we had the guys to, to do the job and they were willing and excited about it. So, you know, my enthusiasm, I think, grew kind of as the, the year went on and we got closer to the season. And, um, you know, we tried not to focus on, the pressure of it, but obviously, you know, it was a, it was a big obstacle and big challenge in front of us. And, 
I'm thankful to to Coach Edson and Coach Ladd for you know putting us up against that because we're here talking about it 20 years later and um, it's a great memory for for us but I also think for a lot of other people that were a part of it whether family and friends and I'm actually in San Jose Joe right now in my office downtown uh, Joey McSweeney who I think is a 2010 grad <laughs> we're, we're colleagues here and I saw him on the way out uh, going to our cars and I said hey I'm you know I'm talking in about an hour about this game and he goes man I that's De La Salle right there. That's awesome. You know, it, it immediately came back to him and he was probably in elementary school when, when the game was going on. So um, happy to have been a part of it, thankful to have been a part of it. And um, although there was some some reservation at first, I think, you know, the excitement grew as the game got closer. Joe, you uh, you were covering De La Salle at the time for the Contra Costa Times. And, and you, of course, know what's coming on paper because sports writers arguing over what team is best in the state as a practice as old as dirt. Um, and a little bit of journalistic uh, inside baseball here. The two, I think we always felt like we did a really good job at the Contra Costa Times of covering our local teams. But the one of the publications in California and kind of a weird twist of this whole thing and Polly being involved that has always been really respected for covering high schools as well was the Press Telegram in Long Beach. So um, you've got a couple of, uh, of heavyweight journalistic uh, entities going to cover this game. Uh, and as you prepared for the game, knowing De La Salle's personnel the way that you did, did you think, and I think we've all had these thoughts throughout the years, oh, this is going to be the one. This is where De La Salle goes down. Did you think this was where the streak was going to meet its end? And what did you expect to see coming into this game? Well, you knew it was a possibility just because you knew how talented Long Beach Poly was and everything. And another thing to talk about is you got to understand, by the time I started covering the team, and that was the first year I covered the team, the streak was over 100 games old. So there was such preparation before you went out to cover a De La Salle game, you had to prepare for what's going to happen if they lose. There was a, there was a, a story written that was going to be already written. We called it a streak obit story that was going to run when De La Salle finally lost. And that was, maybe it was Damon Esper or another De La Salle writer years before who wrote it. And each De La Salle beat writer kind of had to update it after each game, right? Because De La Salle won another game and everything. So Everybody, the whole office is thinking, man, could it happen? And if so, I mean, if De La Salle lost, kind of the whole paper that night gets torn up and redone a little bit. I mean, I'm talking the front page of the paper, too. So, yeah, there was a lot of you were wondering if that was going to happen. But as far as what I thought, I mean, I I mean, I knew how big and talented Polly was. But I also, I mean, I had seen a lot of De La Salle games before I started covering them. So I grew up in Antioch and they had taken on teams out of the area. And it always seemed like it takes even the best teams a quarter or two to get used to De La Salle speed firing off the ball. And they're just, they're just not used to the same pace that De La Salle comes out playing with other teams. Aren't even from other areas aren't used to seeing it. So I thought, is this going to be a matter of Polly's size and talent, maybe just overwhelming De La Salle or is De La Salle going to punch him in the mouth early on and Polly's not going to know what hit him early on. I, I was torn, but I thought De La Salle, I mean, I didn't think De La Salle was going down. It wasn't in my mind, like it's going to end tonight. And the way the game played out, I don't want to jump ahead of it. Maybe we're going to talk about it more, but it did play out that way. De La Salle's just pace of play, firing off the offensive line. I think it did kind of catch him by surprise because when I remember De La Salle went up early and they stayed ahead most of the game. It was Pauly trying to catch up. It's funny you bring up uh, the stories that we used to put in the can because by the time Chase and I got to the De La Salle beat, the streak had ended. And so the thing that we used to joke about constantly was who was going to be the guy that was on the beat and had to have the story ready when Ladd retired. 
<laughs> because that was going to be another big deal for the Contra Costa Times sports section. We were the paper of record. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was no this this the streak and and how long Bob was going to stay there. It was such a big became such a big thing. I mean, by that 2001 season, De La Salle was a national story. And when you think about it, look, I mean, it's going to make us all sound old, sound old saying this or feel old, but the, the internet had only been around for a few years at that point, as far as being a tool to get everybody around the nation talking about high school football on a national level. I mean, that's true, you know? So all of a sudden people were starting to fantasize about these matchups, teams from different areas. I know De La Salle had played long, or modern day already, but this is just another kind of dream matchup people were able to think about and it was just talked about on such a such a national scale. Pretty incredible stuff. I'm going to bring this back to to uh, to Coach Slad and to to Terry here. Um, either one of you guys can go first. It's, it's up to you. You guys have had to game plan for a lot of good teams, and you've had to keep your team focused through some pretty serious hype. So, what was the focus? The X's X like X's and O's wise, what you can remember in planning for Polly, and uh, what did you need to do to temper the hype machine for a game that the entire country was looking at? I will note here that in a Sports Illustrated story, uh, Coach Ladd was quoted as saying that the kids have been preparing for this game since January. So the hype was real, and uh, you guys were having to navigate a lot during that buildup. But what do you guys remember from that from that time? Uh, I can just say that, uh, you know, when Terry puts those teams on our schedule, especially back-to-back, I think everybody on that team, our team, all our kids were like, this is the real deal. And, you know, they kept each other accountable. They're like, get your ass down here. And, you know, you're not going to get away with anything. We have to, it was like preparing for D-Day almost. I mean, that took, that took a year. So ours took what? <laughs> Six months, seven months. I don't know, but that's the way it was. I mean, they knew what was coming. They had, a, they let, never lost their focus over the summer. And, um, you know, I was, I was really impressed with how they were anticipating that game. Now, of course, we were all anticipating it, but we all had that, you know, I don't know, man, can we do it type of thing? And, and, uh, and it, it was going to be decided by, I, th- I thought, how they came out that day and what they had in them that day. And, uh, they didn't let us down at all. It was like, they didn't let anybody down. It was just a, a real vicious battle. I mean, the behind the scenes stuff that Terry and I saw and Matt saw, it, it was pretty intense. It was pretty crazy. And, uh, you know, I know I had to, as a head coach, come up with a, a few plays they hadn't seen. And I was hoping they'd be home run plays that we could just sneak in on them. And uh, we were able to do that. And uh, Matt had to execute all of them. And, and he, it, they came off just as we planned. And they were big. One was for a third down that we really needed that turned into a touchdown. And the other one was uh, uh, leaking Marisa out of the backfield. And uh, Matt throwing a perfect dime on him for a touchdown, too. So, you know, when you got the guys to do that stuff, it makes our job a lot easier and and they just executed the whole game it was great it was awesome it was it was nerve-wracking intense loud but it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience it was really cool area as you prepared to to get the defense ready what 
what what were the guys on on paper that or on film that that you remember being most concerned about? Well, the number one was probably uh, Herschel Dennis. They're a great running back, you know, that went on to USC, had a pretty good college career. So with that that huge offensive line and um, the the other guy, you know, they had, you know, they had Winston Justice who played in the NFL for like, what, nine or 10 years? It was legit 6'6", 280, 290, you know, and they could move. And they had Mercedes Lewis, uh, I remember it was, uh, they called timeout and uh, David Jenkins had to cover uh, Mercedes and I walked out there during the timeout. He was walking back to the huddle. He's like, oh, he's like six, 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 seven. <laughs> Stopped and looking up going, oh my God. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to walk to the huddle. It was just hilarious. Uh, but, you know, I want, I've, you know, the one thing they did not, show that they could do well on film, at least on film was, I didn't think they could throw the ball that well. So I knew we could stay in our, I felt we could stay in our four, four, you know, and back in those days, it was two backs tight in. It was a little, little easier on you in a sense of how you could scheme it. Um, you didn't have to worry about the spread, but I remember even saying, I mean, the best laid plans. I mean, I told them first play, they're going to go play action bomb. And they had this receiver, Derek Jones, run like a 4-3-4. Four, four. And sure enough, they went play-action bomb. And he went right by our corner like he was standing still and dropped the ball, thank goodness. But uh, I said, I, I told you they're fast. I mean, uh, get ready. So that was like right off the bat, the eye-opener. But what I really remember about that game, to be honest with you, is there's two scenes I remember. Now, my nephew we called the flea because he was all, he was quick and fast, but he weighed all of 145 pounds. So he was on that team. He's one of our wide receivers. So he was actually walking and I was walking kind of behind him and we're walking in the locker room and who's in our locker room, the way they had it set up was like, Oh my goodness. They had us like literally right next to each other. And Winston, six, six, 280, Manuel Wright, six, five, 290. Uh, Mercedes Lewis, 6'6", six, six, you know, he's on, he was just a spelt, like 220. And then they had Herschel Dennis, 6'2", and Darnell Bing, who was also had a cup of coffee in the NFL and was a great uh, DB at, uh, I think it was USC or was it Oregon, I forget which one. But they're all standing outside the locker room, and we walked by. They were dressed, too. And they were dressed, ready to go. And I'm looking at those guys, I'm going, oh, my goodness. And looking at us, we're walking by, they literally, they see my nephew and guys like that walk by, and they go, is that their varsity? I mean, they weren't being smart asses. Like they were like really uh, confused or like, is this in their varsity? Is it? And so, and then I just remember we walked out on the field and we warmed up. I don't know if Matt looked, glanced over or looked over there, but I literally, it's first time in my coaching career. It's never happened since I literally walked over there and those guys came on the field, the whole team. And I saw their size. And I, I said to myself, uh-oh, I might have overdone this. <laughs> I might have posted, I go, I thought the I thought the field was literally gonna tilt. They were so uh, and uh I really I really said that to myself. I went, uh-oh, I may have overstepped my bounds here. I actually was like, I actually felt as an adult, like I hope I didn't put these kids in a bad situation because that was I was I was starting to feel like guilty. It's like I know it's a game, but oh my goodness, what have I done to our poor players having to play these dudes? And, uh, but 
uh, that's by far and away the most inspiring moment of my coaching career was being on that field that night. You, you just, you had to be there. You had to understand it. it. It's so hard to describe. It's like describing the birth of your child in the sense of, hey, describe the emotions you're going through. You know, it just, you can't do it. Uh, that night, the feelings that I had, it was like, it was by far and away the, when I kid people, I say, what's the highlight of your coaching career? And I always tell them there's two major highlights Mother Day 98 and, and Polly 2001, no doubt about it. I could build on that just a little bit. <laughs> I've I seen the same thing. Dan Terry already explained. We turned the corner and this, the uh, locker rooms were right on the 50 yard line under the stands. And you had to get down to it from the field side. And as soon as we turned that corner, those guys were all in that tunnel, you know, and just hanging out. And I had the same reaction as Trey. I was going, holy, shit, these guys are bigger than I thought. We were getting dressed. First of all, they played a, a junior college game there in the afternoon ahead of our game. And those locker rooms were steaming hot. And <laughs> they were just horrible to just stand inside of them. And uh, I don't know if everyone, we didn't have enough ice and all that stuff. Anyway, Terry, oh God, yeah. Terry was like at a, in a stall, standing near a stall. And uh, this is after we warmed up, I think. And I came, we came back in. And I always like to talk to Terry before the game just to get his thoughts. And I walked up to him and I go, Terry, what do you think? And he, he just stood there silent. <laughs> I'm like, this is the first time I've ever talked to Terry where I never got an answer back from him. And I'm like, come on, give me something, you know? <laughs> Like, we're going to do this, or we're going to get through this. And he was like silent. And I, I just went, this is big deal. <laughs> I think he was going through his head what he wanted to call and all that stuff. I, But he was like, zip. <laughs> so, uh, Matt. I was thinking about getting a lawyer for all the lawsuits. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're going to take a quick time out for a quick message from Sports Stars Magazine's podcast partner, the California Army National Guard. We understand an upside down world, but they're writing us off before we get to the starting line. A stalled generation? Who do you think is gonna fix all this? We will, because our future is the future. The next greatest generation is now. Visit nationalguard.com to find out more. And now, back to the show. Matt, you walk into Veterans Stadium, 17,000 tickets have been sold. I believe Snoop was there, and this was not the last time we'd see Snoop at a De La Salle game <laughs> over the years. What, what was the player's perspective walking into that stadium, and what was your blood pressure level as you got ready to hit the field? Yeah, I think there was kind of like, you know, a couple different phases. Coaches were talking about when we encountered those guys on the field, you know, pregame, which the same experience here, you know, just walking next to those guys. And I was stature wise, probably one of the bigger guys on our team as the quarterback, Yeah, <laughs> you know, definitely height wise. So, um, so yeah, they were, they were definitely intimidating. And, um, but the one, the thing that I remember the most probably about kind of the environment, you know, we were hearing the whispers of who's there, Snoop, hey, Snoop's in the crowd, Warren G's here, you know, all the NFL uh, guys that had been through poly and, um, but I remember coming out of the tunnel when we were actually going to come out for the game. And I don't know if it was intentional or not, maybe because we were sharing uh, the tunnel, but they lined up all their cheerleaders 
like right right outside as we were going to walk on the field and uh not bad right not bad and I remember I remember looking and thinking like was this intentional to like distract us and, <laughs> and kind of just for me it just kind of lightened the moment briefly um but then going out of the tunnel and you know looking at the visitor side which was the smaller side of the stands it was like you could just feel the energy and how you know of the of the grandstand behind us and uh, I remember thinking like I don't even want to look back over there to see how crazy this this is you know you could just you could you could cut the air with the knife it was it was pretty exhilarating and um I think that was, you know, aside from the game, that moment kind of getting out there before and just feeling the energy of the crowd was was pretty awesome. Joe, there were 121 media credentials issued for this game, and you had one of them. Now, the Contra Costa Times traveled with De La Salle over the years, except for 2008 when a certain reporter wasn't sent to, to New York to cover. Oh. Wow, no bitterness there or anything. Oh. <laughs> but uh, – You didn't miss anything, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it wasn't it wasn't abnormal that you were there. The beat writer traveled with the team a lot. So you've been along for the ride at plenty of big sporting events. You've covered all um, major league baseball all star games. You've covered World Series games. When you look back at this event, what do you remember most about being on the ground for what many consider to be maybe the biggest high school football game ever? It was crazy. I mean, think about it this way: there were two books being written about this matchup basically before it was even played. I'm talking about Neil Hayes's book, which was kind of about De La Salle program altogether, but still it talked about Pauly too. And Neil was there and somebody else is writing a book just on this game. I mean, crazy stuff. Yeah. And you mentioned all the, all the media credentials and everything and, and being there, normally I would walk the sidelines um, covering a, a high school game, right? We love to walk the sidelines, but I was up in the press box. Um, maybe they had a big enough press box. Maybe I just remember being up there. A lot of reporters were up there because you wanted to write a story as soon as the game was over, no matter what happened, you had to get a story filed right away. So I'm um, up in that press box. It was something, it was packed pretty big stadium but it was just it was so full of people it was incredible it was an incredible experience um watching that game um and kind of coming out party for Maurice, Maurice Drew too I mean he was everybody knew what a talented player he was as a junior but um he came out that game and and uh I don't know question I have for for, for Bob and Terry is did you guys I mean Maurice was it was Elijah Bradley and Nate Kenyon were the starting running backs I think up at that point Maurice was playing I think he was playing some defense too, but did you have in your minds that he was kind of going to be a secret weapon? Like maybe teams hadn't <laughs> seen everything he was capable of at that point. Was that intentional? Because you really didn't, you didn't really take the wraps off him offensively until that game. And, you know, he just explodes. Is that, I mean, was that part of the game plan going in? I wasn't sure. I mean, i like you said, he, he was kind of an unproven guy. He was like a real average player going up to that point I knew he had potential he had everybody did it was a no secret but he hadn't produced like he was capable of producing and um when he I thought it was Matt and 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 Maurice that really carried the offense and he just blew up in that game I was you know I was just as surprised as anybody else that he played such an integral part in the, that win and moving our offense. And, uh, you know, talking about Matt, I was like, he's always a cool customer. I mean, he, he never got, never, nothing rattled Matt at all. But I, I got a pretty good story about that in that game. First of all, he, he, he couldn't have placed a better ball on Maurice 
on that uh, wheel out of the backfield. It was just perfectly placed. And then uh, he was hitting a lot of good short passes, getting us first downs because we were having trouble moving the ball on the ground. And I remember when I was scouting the film and we were running our, our dive on our, our options, we run our dives outside the guards and uh, double team the, the three technique, which is right outside the guards tackle or outside the guards shoulder, you know, and what I was trying to trying to get at in that game was not, that's not what we're going to run. We're going to run inside on a gap, which means we're going to run the midline. You remember Matt? Yeah. Part yeah. of the plan put in the midline. Yeah. And so I'd call midline or I'd call midline, you know, let's go 14 midline. And I thought we could really pop those guys right up the middle and, and, and they go untouched into the second level. And every time I called it, Matt would check out of it. And, uh, and it went on for maybe a couple series. I don't know if we, I called it three times or something. And so he came to the sidelines and he goes, I go, why aren't you running that play? checking out of it and he goes coach they're double a's they're inside they're inside the uh the guards and i was like no they're not i i walked down the sidelines they're outside the guards they're they're not run that play and uh he had never he never ran that play and i went back and looked at the game on tv and on film and they were they were inside and it's like i was telling matt you're not seeing it right, or you know, your your mind, you're, you're too nervous. Your mind's out. He said, "Coach, that play's not going to work. They're just sitting, <laughs> kill him." And There's 600 to, pounds of beef lined up on yeah. regalia. <laughs> and I had to apologize. So I was like, after I found that out, I was going, "Hey, Matt, I'm really yeah. sorry." <laughs> run, 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 poor Nate and Elijah into all men. It's 300. Yeah, I'd be running a, yeah. running a hundred or 190-pound back into those monsters in there with no blocking. It would have been disastrous. It would have been a fumble is what it would have been. Yeah. Uh, and then, then Matt hit, Matt hit uh, you know, a, a sprint screen back to Maurice, which resulted in a touchdown. Re those are really complex plays to, to execute because you really have to, you have to pull off a really good fake. And then he also hit one to Otto Bonnie, our tight end, which was a double screen, a play I stole from modern day. And uh, you just pull the line out. You split the line and pull them both out to the sidelines. You keep your tight end. You fake a screen this way, fake a screen the other way. And the tight end goes right up the middle of the field. No one's downfield. And you just hit him on like a 15-yard pass. And he hit that pass and kept another drive alive for a touchdown. You remember that, Matt? Yeah, yeah, I do. There was there was some some really crucial plays, like there is in every game. But it seems like you know in the big ones like this, you know, they always kind of are magnified. Another one I remember is um, I don't know if you remember we we went because we ended up scoring twenty nine, I believe, and at one point we went for a two point conversion, and uh, we threw it to Elijah, I think. And I remember that. I don't remember all the details around the situation, but I remember that being a pretty big, kind of a big play too. Yeah, it was like. <clears throat> And that's what made the game so beautiful. You know, things that we planned on, except the runs that I was telling Matt he was lying about. Um, but all the plays we planned on, those guys executed. And that doesn't happen a lot, you know, when you – and you, you haven't tried it out in games before and stuff. But 
you know, that's a championship team. They can pull that stuff off. And, you know, they just really proved their worth. I mean, it was clutch time. It was a lot of pressure. And, you know, all those situations offensively were usually like third and eight or something like that. And that's when we, we converted on those big plays and they were really critical to the game. Matt, you had one of the most legendary high school careers anyone could have ever had. You played in the NFL and at one point even took Tom Brady's roster spot with the Patriots. It's been 20 years since this game. Do you know, do you think you've ever played in a bigger game than that one? Well, I definitely hadn't, haven't played in or didn't play in any games where I was the actual starting quarterback that, you know, I think meant as much for, for my team. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to be a part of a Patriots team and went to the Super Bowl, which for any of us that, you know, grew up playing football and loving football, that's a, um, that's a highlight for sure. Um, but definitely this, you know, looking at the whole journey, this is, um, this is a, a great memory for me and definitely, you know, towards the top, but because of the win, but more so because of just, you know, as Coach Ladd, Coach Edson, and, and Joe have, have described, you know, there was just something special about the energy of that game and the crowd, the atmosphere. It was, you know, there's been a lot of great games since, obviously, there is every year, but um, I think for all those involved, and just given that it was kind of like one of the first where the big teams clashed and, um, you know, there was, there was something unique about that night and it was special for me too. Yeah. You know, Jason, if I can follow up on that, Matt, this is part of my thinking always when I was getting these games was my thought process. And I think you're, you're going to verify this for me. Anybody of your teammates, I know you stay in touch with, you know, guys throughout the years, but mm -hmm. was there anybody on that field that night that you played with on our team that does not remember this game? <laughs> no way no way even the guys that I mean you have to imagine um, some of those guys were on fumes you know in the second half and mentally oh, no kidding but but they all remember it. yeah I mean that that in part of my reasoning Chase I always said you know I, I'm not saying this was going to be you know the moment of their lives but my thing was I took games like this I said these are going to be lifelong memories for these kids I don't, they don't even realize it when they're, you know, they're playing the game. They're seven, you know, the big thing about uh, playing big games with teenagers is they're such a distract. They're so distracted by nature. They don't really understand like the whole, like the streak and all that. They're like, wait, this girl I like didn't call me last night. I'm more concerned about that than the winning streak. And so then as they get older and they look back, you know, it becomes really a, a special moment. And I knew that by playing this game, it would be a special moment in a lot of young men's lives. And uh, I think, you know, that's that's one of the reasons why I love playing big games like that. Joe touched on the Maurice effect a little bit uh, earlier. And I'm going to ask this question of all four of you because I'd really, I'll, Joe, I'll start with you. I, I really, having not been there and having only watched coverage of it after the fact, why did De La Salle win? And, and I asked that because some of the coverage that I watched back flat out said that you had a master plan and you'd been hiding Maurice for the first three games of the year. So I watched a little bit of that earlier today. Um, but Maurice was also quoted after the fact saying that he thought Polly underestimated you guys. So I'm curious to get your take and Joel start with you and then we'll go around the horn. Do you think Polly underestimated De La Salle? Is that a fair assessment or was this just a case of De La Salle being ready to roll in the biggest of situations? 
De La Salle being ready to roll, but that was hearing that story about the comments Pauly players were making when they saw De La Salle walk by. I mean, it makes me think that maybe they were overlooking him a little bit, especially when they saw the size difference, probably. Maybe they were, but um, it goes back. I mean, De La Salle, you know, these guys had played in big games before. They had played modern day before. I think they were used to going into situations like this and probably used to going in knowing they were thought of as an underdog. My guess is probably the first time they played modern day, a lot of people thought, oh, De La Salle is going to meet their match here. It's going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to drop this one, but um, the players are ready for it. And they, you know, like I think it was Bob that said, Derek Jones, where he was Terry that said, you know, drop the deep pass early on, you know, just deal South came up with the clutch plays and Pauly didn't. And maybe Pauly was physically a bigger team, but deal South was more ready for the big moments. I think they were more ready for, I think they were more ready for the bright lights and the magnitude of that game actually more so than Pauly. Cause I think, I think deal South played in more of those games probably than Pauly had played in. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, we were always underestimated for Southern California. It wasn't until we beat Polly, like everyone started like, okay, I guess we have to start taking that program (laughs) seriously. So um, that, which is amazing. We play them the next year and we know we played in that Hawaii game and they were in front of us and they were talking smack to us then. And even before the game, remember the guy that uh, safety had that Maurice who drew who on his, uh, his, on his uh, plate for his pads and all that, you know? So uh, that it's kind of the way it was. SoCal NorCal that they kind of always saw it that way, you know, that real football is played in Southern California and, you know, that's kind of the way it's always been, but I think the secret is very simple. And I mean, you know, and teams have caught on to this, but in all honesty, in 2001, I mean, everyone had a weight program and people had conditioning programs, but no one was, and I mean this sincerely, no one was working like we were in the summer back in those days in high school football. That has now changed. You know, the big programs are all, everyone's doing that. But back then, you know, kids being committed like our kids throughout the whole spring, throughout the whole summer, um, that was that was a different animal back then. And so um, our conditioning was definitely superior to, to their conditioning. Anyway, and we still wore out, even though, but our, our backup kids went in there in the third quarter and held the line. And I think that was one of the greatest tributes to it. And I think Matt would agree uh, to De La Salle, what a, what a team effort that was, because we had to rely on a lot of backups to keep it going while kids were recovering uh, on that sideline because they had just given everything they had. And I'm going to tell you, you know, coaches speak is you got to go out and give 100%. You got to go out and, you know, the impossible 110% is, you know, you can't give 110%. But I can honestly tell you that night, everyone gave 100%. That's the, the first time in my coaching life I walked off that field saying, I don't think we could have played any harder. No, that's true. We were, and during the game, I was saying to myself, if this doesn't work out, I go, I couldn't be more proud of these kids because they're giving us every last drop they had. That's why it was so inspiring. How many have been in a situation with high school kids where they're doing that? I mean, it was, I, I was just, I was just, uh, uh, humbled to be a part of it. I'm serious. I was just humbled that these kids could rally around each other and do that for each other. It was it was an incredible experience, and I was I, I was just um, so inspired by the whole moment. It was just really incredible, and um, it was it was 
an unbelievable night to, to be a part of. And I think anybody that was there will tell you the exact same thing. I mean, the respect level of our program went up a thousand degrees in, 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 um, in the LA area after that game. There's no doubt about it. You know, people just going like, I just can't believe how hard those kids fight out there. Yeah, it's, you had to, I agree, Terry. You, you had to be there to see some of the moments took place in that game. And, you know, only us as coaches could re really see it because a lot of it took place behind the scenes. Right before halftime, you know, or when halftime started, um, kids went in the locker room and they were just exhausted because we had so many two-way players also. And I think they introduced, interviewed me as a, before I went in, the sideline guy, and he says, how do you feel about this coming out in the second half? How do you like your first half? What do you think the second half? And I go, I just hope we can hang in there. And I went into the locker room and kids were laying on the floor. Their pads were off. Their shirts were off. Um, there was an IV in one of our defensive linemen's arms. And I was like, whoa. Yeah, I mean, I, as a coach, and I am always was concerned about their, their safety and their, you know, um, health. And I'm like, wow. I pulled Mike aside, our trainer, and I said, Mike, I don't want any of those guys back on the field unless they're totally ready to play. So you're going to make the subs in the second in the third quarter. And uh, he did. He subbed our linemen in and out, our linemen in and out. Uh, Carlos Javier, who had the IV stuck in him, made it back by the end of the third quarter. Oh, well, I got a story about <laughs> like, what is he doing in the game? He goes, no, goes no. fine. <laughs> he, he did. He came up to me. And this was, what was Carlos? What was he, Matt? Like 205, maybe? Yeah, maybe yeah, somewhere on there, 210. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but tough as nails. And I remember that. He was at halftime going, and he was one of our hardest, like a Joey Waska. It reminded me of a car. They're probably the same type of kids, undersized kids, give you great technique, give you everything they got. And I remember I'm on the sideline, and it's the start of the fourth quarter. He comes bouncing up to me. He goes, Coach, I'm ready to go back in. I go, get out of here. What? Oh, really? I can go back in. Get a, get the train, get the doctor here, get the trainer over here. And they walked up and go, no, he can go back in. I went, all right, dude. Get <laughs> like, 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 that half time, that half time, at halftime looked like a mash unit. You know, we were I was going, I think we're done. You know, yeah, know. It, it certainly looked that way, <laughs> yeah, but right. man, talk about a spirit on a team and just right. a deniable desire. It was, I agree with Terry. It's one of the most inspiring things I've ever been a part of as a coach. It was scary. It was, I was nervous and all those things, every emotion you could think of it had, that game had everything in it uh, that you could possibly experience on a uh, athletic competition level of any any level it's, it's so many we were so everybody was so emotionally invested in that game that it just it was beyond I, I never been a part of a game like that again and the one guy we haven't mentioned yet that uh needs to be mentioned is Derek Landry yeah, you know our, our, our defensive lineman you know defensive offensive lineman going two ways 
you know, one of the greatest, uh, you know, players play line in Dallas Valley history for sure. But um, Andy Briner. That game, and it, oh, yeah, it was uh, Briner and Carlos and uh, Barbero, all those guys on the front line, you know, and Otto Bonnie and Cole Smith, John Chan. A lot of these guys end up, end up playing in college. So, you know, I think like Matt said, we, we had some guys who were unproven. We, some guys actually, you know, this game and that season, they kind of showed, you know, the kind of team that they were. We didn't, I mean, we didn't have, just, you know, we had a lot of guys ended up playing some significant college football. So we had, a, we had a team, a better team than we probably thought we had uh, when we took the game. But um, about Landry, that propelled him. Now, I could be wrong, but I'm usually not. But uh, <laughs> defensive lineman to win player of the year, California State player of the year. I mean, that's how dominant he was. And the great story I heard years later from the players, which I'd never heard, is that he was lining up and the poly quarterback came up and he looked and he gets down his stance. He looked at, you know, he looked over at the, you know, at Landry goes, Will somebody block that guy, please? <laughs> uh, that, that he was just just an incredible game all, all evening long. And that's the way it was. Everybody stepped up and just to kind of a, a new level. I don't know, Matt, would you, those are your teammates. What do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, when you, when you asked initially if they underestimated us, I think they probably did, um, not intentionally, but just by human nature, like you said, right? Just look at themselves and then looking at our team. Um, but there would, there would be, there would have been no way for them to, you know, give us the, the respect that we deserved, I guess, going into the game. There would have been no way that I could see that they wouldn't underestimate us because nobody could have known the way that we had been prepared. You know, Coach talked about the emotional investment, and they're really, you know, I think in my experience, there's been very few times, very few teams um, where even though there's ups and downs and, you know, you're, you're being challenged, things are really firing on all cylinders. It's, you know, people are just totally dialed in. And I think, you know, coach talked about it being a long process to prepare for that game. And that's something that is very hard to quantify. Um, and I think a lot of people try to figure it out about De La Salle and what makes De La Salle special. How do you, how do you even compete with a team like Pauly with, um, you know, with an overmatched roster? But there's something special about Coach Ladd and Coach Jensen and what they were able to put together um, each year. Every team's different. And I think that team was unique in, in the individuals that we had, but also in the way that they laid out the offseason and invested the time in us to kind of forge, you know, forge the team that we pulled together. And, um, yeah, I, I really don't know what else to say. It's a, it is almost hard to kind of put into words and, that's what's awesome about it. I mean, as, as he's, you know, we're sitting here talking and telling stories, I'm, it's coming back and I'm, you know, I'm seeing the guys laying on the ground in the locker room. <laughs> I was going to ask what, what do you remember about that halftime scene? It, it's exactly as they described. I mean, I don't remember, I don't remember any chairs in the locker room. I just remember like a concrete floor and the, like the metal kind of blink looking lockers and people just laid out in their equipment on the ground. Um, and I, in, in, in a lot of ways, I look back at the game sometimes when when I'm thinking back on it, I almost feel like a spectator um, in a sense, because like at halftime, I'm the quarterback. So, yeah, I'm, 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 you know, I'm working hard out there, but not like Landry, not like Carl. <laughs> or, 
you know, they're giving up in some cases 50, you know, 50 plus pounds going both ways. So, um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing, you know, without getting outside the bounds of sports into, you know, more serious things like law enforcement, military and all that. I mean, it's pretty rare to see, you know, young athletes like that putting on the line and really, you know, giving everything they have. And, uh, you know, again, it was, it was really neat to be a part of. It was pretty impressive too. I, I think that was the fifth game of the season for you guys. And I mean, there was no like mental let up after that too, going back into the regular, you know, regular portion of your schedule. I think you played at Pittsburgh the next week. And I was wondering, are they going to come out flat or, or, you know, is it going to be a different looking team? And not at all. You guys kept the pedal of the metal pretty good. I mean, that was, so you had games leading up to Pauly that you had to not look past. And then you had half your schedule after that too. You had to not, you know, have a letdown for either, but um, no, you guys rolled, absolutely rolled the rest of the season too. Yeah. I think that, you know, again, that speaks to the, the leadership the coaching we had. And I don't think it's any secret now that one of the, you know, one of the methodologies or one of the kind of secrets of De La Salle, one of the ingredients is, is to do just that, to, you know, take things one day at a time, one week at a time. And, um, you know, there's plenty of games where, you know, maybe even the games in Pittsburgh game you're referring to where there may have been some type of letdown. It may not have shown them the score, but, um, you know, we would definitely hear about it if it, if it wasn't up to par afterwards. So the expectation was always set. And, um, you know, that was just kind of, you know, what was expected. Okay, I'm going to give one more story and I'll shut up because <laughs> things are popping into my head as we're talking. I remember right before halftime, uh, I don't know if we were trying to get put another score up, but uh, it, Matt was taking a, a straight drop. He wasn't rolling out or play action or anything like that. I, so I think we were trying to get the ball down the field quick. And But I, I didn't. I, there wasn't enough time on the clock. I was kind of like, hopefully we can luck out maybe. And the pocket collapsed on us and he starts rolling out to our sideline. And, you know, I think I, I'm almost positive. I'm, I'm on then these guys are in hot pursuit. They're linebackers, everybody. And I'm yelling to Matt on the, uh, as he's coming towards me, I'm like, get out of bounds, get out of bounds. And I thought he was going to run out of bounds but he gets about four yards from the sideline, turns up field, puts his head down and his shoulders down and plows into those guys. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, after that, it was like halftime, like another four seconds left. We need you for the second half, get out of bounds. But he, you know, that's what kind of game it was. He was like, he ran in there like he was a fullback or something going over the goal line. I was going, wow, you know, that's just a, that's just that kind of game. Coach Ladd started telling that story, and Matt immediately started laughing because he knew what was coming. <laughs> yeah, there was a couple there. I actually thought he was referring to another play where I got uh, I got knocked a little loopy, kind of on a I think it was a keep or a scramble to the right. It might have been a veer run or something, but I ended up going forward. But Manuel Wright, who was playing defensive line, you know, pursued. And he ended up squaring me, you know, like right in the side of the helmet. And I got up and the legs were a little wobbly. I think that was early, you know, second quarter. I felt like Mickey and Rocky. I'm going, <laughs> get up. Yeah. Shake yeah. Your head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was the ill-advised move there. 
You don't have any CTE or anything, do you? No, no. Like, okay, good. I'm pretty sharp. Sure. <laughs> Terry's big on, on making sure our podcast avoids lawsuits. <laughs> yeah. That pretty much is the end of our string of questions. But if, if you guys, if there's anything else that, that's come to mind that you want to bring up or ask one of the other panel members, uh, feel free. And, the, and if not, then I'll, I'll wrap it up. Joe, did you hit deadline? <laughs> I think I did. I don't remember getting in trouble, so I think I did. Yeah, perfect. I think I did. Then, no, then it's um, a good football game. I got to cover this team for three years, and I can't believe how lucky I was. I covered that first De La Salle Long Beach Poly game, which was absolutely historic. The next year, I got to travel to Hawaii to cover this team play St. Louis High School. That was an incredible experience. And the next year, they host Evangel Christian at DVC. I think it was the first high school football game live on ESPN, I think. I mean, it was, it was first national high school football game. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just incredible stuff. I mean, I got to cover major league baseball after that, but, but those three years covering deal with Sal, it was like, it was a roller coaster. It was an incredible ride and just incredibly memorable. And I just remember being lucky to be there covering that team at that point in time. Cause it was really something special. We've I, seen some incredible athletes, the three of us, at the expense of uh, De La Salle or the, the pleasure of getting to cover them. Um, and so I think all three of us agree with that statement because we've seen some incredible and a future NFL players because De La Salle has played them. Full disclosure about that game, you know, why we always took those big games on the road because I was the athletic director and I wanted to not be at home because that's a pain in the butt to be an athletic director at huge games. So anytime I could go on the road, I took full advantage of that because then I could just coach. So that was the reason why we went on the road and it always made Coach Lad a little upset that we always had to go first. But um, but well, I just, 20, it seems 20 years that even, God, that's gone by fast. I mean, um, I can't remember... It seems like even longer than that, really. I mean, it goes by fast, but it just seems like, God, it seems like ages ago, but what a game um, that was. And I, I don't think any, I think that's one of those games, you know, Ben and Chase, where this one was like, oh, I was at that game. You know, that's one of those ones, you know. And uh, what it, for a high school football game to say, I was at that game, what, what an experience. That's one thing I'm pretty proud of myself, putting that game together for that experience. I'll, I'll pat myself on the back for that one. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I could have strangled you when you did, but <laughs> it all worked out good. <laughs> I got one question. Joe, what what are you doing to uh, take care of yourself? You look like Benjamin Button, for crying out loud. <laughs> I look like the same guy I had right. on the sideline back in those days. You can't, you gray hairs here, Bob. You can't see the gray hairs are in there. Yeah. The gray hairs are in there, believe That's me. actually a good point. It looks like the same guy we saw 20 years ago. Yeah, I know. <laughs> he didn't coach. That's why he didn't look so good, lad. <laughs> well, thanks for doing this, guys. I really appreciate it. You brought back good, some really good memories. I, I really enjoyed that. Good to see you too, Matt. I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, good to see everybody. This yeah. was this was fun. Thank you. For it was fun. Together. Good to see everybody. Thanks for the yeah. invite. Yeah. Barry didn't do any work to put this together. I want that known. <laughs> oh yeah I, I texted two people that was really difficult <laughs> one last time uh thanks to all of you for taking your time uh from your evening to sit down with us i know I, I, joe just already touched on this but ben and i both consider ourselves lucky as well to have had the opportunity to cover and report on on the dale south program at different points in our career and uh you've always you've always been generous with your time and thoughtful with your comments and most of all supportive of our efforts and our work so thanks again 
very much. Yes, right. thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Bye. Okay. Good seeing you guys. What a very cool hour of conversation that turned out to be. Before we do a final sign off, we thought we'd add an epilogue of sorts. First, a few fact checks from the episode. De La Salle did face modern day prior to that Long Beach Poly game. However, it wasn't in back-to-back -back weeks. The Spartans defeated the Monarchs 34-7 on September 22nd and then beat St. Francis of Mountain View 42-0 the week before traveling to Long Beach. Also, Derek Landry was indeed Cal High Sports Mr. State Football in 2001. However, despite Coach Edson's claims, he is not the last lineman to be bestowed with that honor. It took 15 years, but St. John Bosco Bellflower's offensive lineman Wyatt Davis earned the title in 2016. Well, let's also add some stats from that game and season. Maurice Drew scored all four touchdowns in the game, two on the ground, and two on passes from Matt Gutierrez. The score was 20-15 to 15 at halftime, which means De La Salle shut out the Jackrabbits in the second half. Pretty incredible when considering the halftime locker room scene that was described. De La Salle finished that season 12-0, defeating San Leandro 48-13 in the North Coast Section 4A East Bay Championship at the Oakland Coliseum back when that was a thing. The Spartans were indeed Long Beach Poly's only loss of that season. The Jackrabbits finished 12-1 and won the Southern Section Division I title by beating Edison of Huntington Beach 42-28. One year later, the teams met again as the national number one and number two teams. They squared off on October 12, 2002 at Memorial Stadium on the campus of Cal Berkeley. De La Salle won the rematch 28-7. Gutierrez's successor, at quarterback, Ritz Cecil had a monster game, completing 12 of 17 passes for 237 yards and three touchdowns. He also rushed for a fourth score and added a two-point conversion run. Drew didn't score in the game, but did rack up 161 rushing yards on 19 carries. Cameron Colvin and Terrence Kelly both had TD catches in the win as well. And I think that will do it. What a week. Uh, we, will, we will offer one last thanks to Coach Bob Latticer, Coach Terry Edson, Matt Gutierrez, and Joe Stiglitz. Seven Friday Night is available on several platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. If you listen to shows on one of those platforms, search for the number seven Friday night, and please rate and subscribe. We build Seven Friday Night using Anchor. You can leave a voice message for us by visiting anchor.fm slash number seven Friday night. Each of our episodes also get their own dedicated page on Sports Stars Magazine's web home, sportsstarsmag.com. You can stream the episode there or find links to various other platforms and check out a variety of bonus items that we tend to include as well. For this one, we will be embedding the replay of that game telecast, which can still be found on YouTube. Our cover art was designed by me using a photo by the late great Nerva Vondergoven. Our killer theme music was written and performed by Dustin Phillips. And that'll do it for this bonus episode. We hope you enjoyed the memories. We'll see you next week. Bye.